I first moved to Houston um, when I was 22 years old. I was just out of college. My wife and I were married and we bought our first home and we thought that was a really good idea to buy a home. We bought a, an older home in an in a established neighborhood. It was built in the 70s. And um, when we bought it, we knew there were gonna be a couple things to do in there. Uh, we also knew that I had never been uh, mistaken for a handyman. And so there was gonna be either some learning on my part or gonna need some serious help on the other side. As we were moving in, we lived in a neighborhood, it was a five mile radius and there were 600,000 people in this five, five mile radius. Um, as we were moving in, I'm moving stuff in and this uh, man in his 70s, he was about this tall, walks over across the street, welcomes me to the neighborhood. He was the first home built in that neighborhood and had lived there ever since. Uh, I called him the godfather of the neighborhood. He knew everything that went on. He called police, he informed the police. Uh, everything that went on in this neighborhood, it, it went through Armando. And Armando told me that day, he said, hey, Jonathan, if you ever need anything around your house, just let me know. I know how to do a lot of stuff. He was a retired postal worker that just loved to work on things with his hands. And he's walking away and I said, I don't think he knows what he just signed up for. <laughs> one of the first things my wife asked me, I'm, I'm telling you, I don't know how to do anything. And so one of the first things we did was I, I needed to put up some light fixtures and I called Armando and Armando comes over and I tried to pay him as he was leaving. And he said, young man, if you ever pay me, I will never come back. Deal, you know, here we go. So I can't tell you the projects that we did together. And by we did together, Armando did and I watched and I, and I learned, um, but Armando knew how to do everything. His garage, he opened up his garage and his garage was a hardware store. He worked uh, just for fun at Sears Hardware after he retired from the postal service, just just because he wanted something to do in hardware. And he had every tool and he knew how to use every tool. We replaced garage doors, we did light fixtures, we did toilets, my pipes froze one time, he came over and welded them. And we did all this together. Now, I got a friend uh, that he was roommates with Max Licato in college. Max Licato's a, a number one bestseller. And uh, my friend always says, between Max and I, we've written millions of, or we've sold millions of books. So between Armando and I, we've done thousands of projects. <laughs> but here's what Armando did. He taught me how to neighbor. Armando was not a Christian, but he taught me how to neighbor. And we shared each other's stories. And those five years that we lived there, we walked through death together. My sister died, his son died. We walked through that together. He had a son get married. We walked through that together. He became a grandparent. We walked through that together. Uh, when I go back to Houston now, the first per people that, that my family goes and sees are Armando and Josie. Because we neighbored together, but we're family. And they taught me how to neighbor. And I want to be very clear that I'm using neighbor as a verb and not a noun. Armando taught me how to neighbor by showing me what it means to be in, in, in the community together. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10. It's a story that many of us know, the Good Samaritan. And I, I think it, it's very um, intentional that Luke places this story sandwiched in between a story about Jesus sending and a story of Jesus teaching on serving. And between those two stories is this story. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? 
He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, as we open the text this morning, we believe that your word is living, that it is active, that it pierces our souls, that it leads, that it is the way, that your word is a lamp to our feet. And I ask that you would give us ears to hear what it is you have to say in this place. I pray that as I speak, that you would pour through me the gift of preaching, that my words would be of you, that they would bring honor, that they would bring truth. Your name is lifted high. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I love the Old Testament, and I love uh, when we can see bridges between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, in, in Genesis, when it first begins, uh, life is built around a tribe and everyone belonged to a tribe. Your tribe was your family. Your tribe was your bloodline. Your tribe was, was those who you wanted to keep safe. And so everything that you did was for the good of the tribe. It was about tribal preservation. It was about tribal accumulation. It was about safety. It was about refuge. It was about fortress. It was about uh, prospering and widening and growing our tribe, both in riches and in numbers. Everything was about that. You wanted to protect your tribe. You wanted, you wanted to, to grow what was yours. And so wars were fought between tribes. Wars were fought for one to conquer the other, to grow this, to dominate another. But you also had to keep a pulse on what other tribes were doing because if other tribes all of a sudden had some new invention like bronze and iron, you had to keep up with the tribe next to you. And that's exactly what we see happen in the David and Goliath story, right? One tribe versus another tribe that knew this other tribe had something invented that they were going to use to conquer one. And so they had to preserve their tribe. Everything was either about tribal preservation or tribal accumulation. And so here in Genesis chapter 12, God enters in and, and he, he brings about this new idea about what a tribe is going to look like. We haven't heard of this person before. And God brings this call into Abram's life. This is before Abram was Abraham. This is what the Lord said. Leave your country your people, your father's household, and go to the land. So basically God is saying, leave your tribe. I know these are your people and I'm calling you to something bigger. Leave your tribe and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and get this, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the other part. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This was a concept that was unheard of at this time. It was all about growing your tribe. And now all of a sudden God enters in to the story and God says, no, it's not about tribal preservation. It's not about tribal accumulation. It's about I'm putting in, I'm instituting, I'm birthing a new tribe that the point of this tribe is to bless other tribes. This tribe is going to be a blessing to all other tribes through you. Can you imagine what was going through Abram's mind when God gives him this blessing? That all other tribes are going to be blessed by this tribe. And they still didn't get it. And so thousands of years later, we fast forward and we're still about tribal preservation. Here we are in Luke chapter 10 and this man saying, who is my neighbor? Because it's still about tribal preservation of the Jewish law. We fast forward thousands of years and here we are and it's still about tribal preservation. How can we protect what is ours? How can we grow what is ours? How can we prosper what is ours rather than being a blessing to others? You see, one of the reasons that I love the Old Testament is there's a lot of misconceptions and misinterpretations of it. We hear a lot about God is angry, God is mad, God wants to dominate these people, God wants to do this, his wrath and all this stuff. But when you really look at it, you see seeds of restoration, you see seeds of grace, you see seeds of love, all that are planted in the story through the Old Testament that weave and and bring about this, this story into the Jesus story, which then weaves and brings about the story into complete restoration. And Here's some pieces of the Old Testament that I I want you to get. Deuteronomy talks about, make sure you take care of the widows, the orphans, and the refugees. I mean, this, this is the hardcore Old Testament. Make sure you take care of these people. Leviticus tells people, make sure you leave a corner of your field unharvested so that the poor can have food. Exodus talks about slavery and releasing from slavery and coming into this new way of life, which then brings about the year of Jubilee that brings about freedom for all. And that's in the middle of Exodus, which is, we interpret as a story of of deliverance, but then also the story of war. And God's bringing about freedom and he's bringing about this new identity through the 10 commandments. And then Leviticus has this command that then we see bridge to Luke chapter 10, where Leviticus is where these words are written, love your neighbor as yourself. And we jump forward to Luke chapter 10, and we still see the same thing going on. So Luke 10, 25, here, Luke is very selective in his words. And I feel like, like it's subjective when you say an expert in the law. How do you prove that, Right? And I feel like Luke is, is using a hint of sarcasm when we, he says, here's this expert in the law. Now, through the Old Testament, we see 613 commands that are given to the people of God. So you fast forward over thousands of years, and they've even layered those 613 commands with thousands of more commands. And this expert in the law knows all of them. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a sermon for another day. We can get into that. What is written in the law, Jesus replied, and how do you read it? And the man answers. He answers with a command from the Old Testament. This isn't this guy's great thoughts. He answers with scripture. And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you have answered correctly, Jesus says, do this and you must live. Now we read read scripture through our own lens. We read it through our own tone. What I see is when Jesus says, do this and you will live, is Jesus thinks it's the end of the conversation. His gaze turns and he goes back to teaching. They're, They're here in the temple, in the synagogue, Jesus is teaching, and he goes back to speaking to the people. And the man, and this is what Luke says, he says, to justify himself, so to bring about his greatness, this man says, and who is my neighbor? Now, I feel like this is one of those parts where like in the restaurant, the jukebox stops, you know, and Jesus looks at him and he says, you, want to, you really want to play that game? <laughs> All right, here we go. And he enters into this story. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in this story. But one of the things that this man wanted to know is what, what is my box? When you say love my neighbor, what is my box? What are my boundaries? What are my limitations? Define for me who my neighbor is, but define for me who my neighbor isn't, right? It's, it's kind of like uh, sometimes when my kids ask a question and there's an underlying theme to their question. Like when we're, when we're on a road trip and one of the kids in the back seat says, does anyone else have to use the restroom? <laughs> that, that means they have to use the restroom, right? And so here's this man and he says, well, who is my neighbor? The question's not about the neighbor. The man had, had no intent of wanting to know who his neighbor was. He wanted to know who his neighbor wasn't. He wanted to know the box. He wanted to know the limitations. He wanted to know exactly checklist. Who must, who are you saying I have to love? Because there are some people that I don't want to love. And I need to make sure you don't put them in my box. And so Jesus enters into the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And let's be honest, the story could have ended there. Point taken, Jesus. We need to be aware of the opportunities around us. When we see opportunities to serve, when we see someone in need, we'll serve them. We got it. And Jesus takes it a step further. But here's here's the implications that are going on in this story. There's there's social implications going on in the story. There's different social classes that Jesus has in this story. There's religious implications going on in this story. You have a priest, you have a Levite. And who is Jesus teaching in this moment as well? Know your audience. And there's racial implications going on in the story because there is a big race war going on between Jews and Samaritans. There are a lot of underlying themes that we don't always pick up going on in this story. And here's what Jesus says. They both passed by on the other side. Point taken. Now they may have had good reasons for passing by on the other side, right? They, they might've had a Bible study to get to. 
They, they might have had a, a teaching session going on that they were supposed to go and teach on Torah. They were supposed to go and teach on the Old Testament. And you don't really want us to skip that, do you? They could have had family reasons. They could have had all of, this, of these other things, but they were not present to the opportunity that was put before them to serve. For us, it would be similar to, because uh, priest and Levite don't really translate to us, right? So for us, it would be similar to a, a pastor and a judge that are going by. And, and so these are people that, that are somewhat um, of high esteem in our community, that we expect wisdom and we expect them to grasp the opportunity, right? And Jesus says, these people did not grasp what was put in front of them. And rather than ending the story there, Jesus has to say these three words. And in these three words right here, tone changes. And you can see everyone in the room back straightens up because Jesus says, but a Samaritan. What? So here's this religious point that Jesus is trying to make. And he uses people of a different religion. So if Jesus was saying this story to us, how would you feel if Jesus used these words and he said, but a Muslim did what I wanted him to do? The pastor and the judge skipped it and a Muslim got it. And he goes on through the story and he tells the rest. And the point of the story is, this is the man who showed up and did something. All three of them showed up. And there's one that did something. And Jesus' last words are, go and do likewise. Do what he did. It doesn't matter what you think about him. It doesn't matter what your connotations are of him. He did. He was available and he did. 1 John 3.18 says this, Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. And this isn't a works-based gospel. This isn't a works-based salvation. This is Jesus saying, if you have received the love of God, you will pour out the love of God. If you have received the gospel, you will be the gospel. And if all we do is receive it and we pinch it off and we clamp it down, we, we are not fulfilling who we are called to be in pouring out the gospel to others and expressing and empowering others through the power of the gospel. And it is a selfish and a self-centered gospel when all we do is receive and not recognize and jump into the opportunities of service for others. And there are implications in that. There's a comedian that tells a story of, of he flies first class all around the country. And as he's sitting in first class, he'll often see a soldier walk down the aisle. And he said, every time he sees that, I think to myself, I should give that soldier my seat in first class and switch with him. And I've never done it once. But I'm proud of myself for thinking it. And that's us. We see people in need. We see opportunities to serve and we recognize it and we're proud of ourselves for recognizing it rather than jumping into it. And I'm gonna be honest with you, sometimes it can be hard. 
And sometimes it can be messy and it's who we're called to be. And it goes back to to what we were talking about earlier of living in community is you're never called to jump into it alone. We have community that is the body of Christ that serves and that walks alongside of with us. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, for at least several decades, the church of the Western world has not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. One is not required to be or to intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. And one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress toward or in discipleship. Contemporary American churches in particular do not require following Christ and his example, spirit, and teaching. And so to sum that up, this is what he's saying. As he says, we want to believe in Jesus a lot more than we want to do what Jesus did. And we have set up our gospel of the more that we believe, that's it. Rather than believe, which inspires us and compels us to do what Jesus did. In fact, 1 John, he even says this. He says, walk as Jesus did. Never once does the gospel story invite us to believe and stop and wait for the second coming of Jesus. What the gospel story does is it pours into us and we pour it out. We receive, we extend. We receive, we extend. We receive, we extend. And the reason I'm saying that over and over again is because I want it to be, to be engraved in your heart that that is what the gospel story calls us to do. And when we only do one of those without the other, it's incomplete. If all we do is receive, we're selfish, we're self-centered, and it's all about us. If all we do is extend, you're going to burn out really quick and you're going to wonder why you're not filled. We receive, we extend, we receive, we extend. And it's this fluid motion of the gospel that's pouring and it cycles and it's pouring and it cycles. And it calls us to constantly be in both hand in hand. Now, Dallas Willard's quote, which talks about the lack of discipleship in our churches. I'm gonna be completely honest with you that as a leader in this church, we have done a poor job of that. We have done a poor job of calling people to discipleship. We have done a great job of welcoming people in. We have done a great job of welcoming people from all backgrounds in and inviting them into belief. But in the Western church, both here at Crossroads, but it's all throughout the Western church, we have done a poor job of tasking people to discipleship after belief. And as one of the leaders in this church, I want to tell you that we are committed to writing that and to changing that. And so as, as we've, we're called into this love where you live, we believe this is one of the first steps that's going to call our church into discipleship, both as a community, but also in your place where you live, where you work, all of that. We are inviting you into receiving and extending. And so I want to say that I'm sorry, that as a leader in this church, I'm sorry for not calling you to something greater than that. But it's time. It's time to begin a process of discipleship. And you may say, I don't know where to start. That's okay. You start at one. Everything starts at one. You don't start counting at seven. You start at one. And it's time.
So what's different tomorrow? If you've heard me preach before, you know that as we read through texts, as we read through and and, and have these thoughts and we talk for a little bit, that it it all comes back to what's different tomorrow. Because if nothing changes from hearing the word of God today, if nothing changes to compel us into tomorrow, then it's just moot, right? So what's different? The Indonesian constitution has a religious freedom written into it. And it allows six religions to practice freely in their country. It allows Protestantism, Islam, Catholicism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Confucianism to all practice freely in their country. 125 years ago, both Christian missionaries and Muslim missionaries showed up in Indonesia. The Christian Christian missionaries did a lot of really good things. They built schools, they built hospitals, they built clinics, they built all of these places that people could come to and receive service. And you know what all of those places had in common? They all had walls around them. They were compounds. They were fences that were not meant to keep things in, but they were meant to keep people out. On the contrary, Muslims moved in 125 years ago and they moved into the neighborhoods and they became part of the DNA fabric in their neighborhoods. And so 125 years later, Indonesia is 86% Muslim because of their desire to be part of where they were. So what's different tomorrow? I wanna call you to begin to tear your walls down, to tear your fences down and to be part of the neighborhood where you are, both literally your neighborhood, but also figuratively your neighborhood. That it's time to tear those walls down. It's time to actively pursue the opportunity that Jesus puts before you. And so generally I, we, we talk about, and, I, and you've heard lessons on the Good Samaritan that talk about who is your neighbor and that everyone is wherever you are, whoever's next to your neighbor. Yes, that's true. And generally I wanna, I wanna speak to that, but I wanna challenge you today to be specific in who your neighbor is to be specific in your your place where you live, who is your neighbor, to be specific in the place where you work, who is your neighbor, and to jump into the stories and fabric of their lives. And even greater, here's what I want to challenge you with. And I told Darren, I said, this is just a, this part right here is a preview for a sermon on on another day. But I want to challenge you to change the way that you initially see people. Because if, if your initial perspective of someone is not image of God, then we've begun a process of dehumanizing those people because it automatically means we're putting a label on them. And labels can be good and they can be bad. It can be an inferior label. It can be a superior label. But if our initial way that we view people is not image of God, which Genesis 1 tells us is man and woman are made into the image of God. If our initial view is not image of God, then we begin a process of dehumanization that's going to change how we view those people. And so if all we see when we first look at people is Republican, Democrat, gay, straight, uh, divorced, struggling, whatever, whatever that label is, then it's dehumanizing and it changes from image of God. And I want to challenge you to change the way that you view people and it will change the way that you serve people. We are called to be a people who are labelless 
and boundless and limitless on how we serve and who we serve. That it comes back to that question of who is my neighbor is not about who is not my neighbor, but the basic essence of the question is how can I love better? How can I receive and extend better? I'm going to invite our altar team up. I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to spend some time in prayer. If there's anything that our altar team uh, can pray with you, they want to jump into that with you. But I want to challenge you that even right now, that you can be specific in who it is that your neighbor is. If it's, if it's a specific person on your mind, if it's uh, something that you don't even know where to start, I want you to just pray that God would reveal who to neighbor to on your heart. For some of you, it, it may mean that you've made a mess of some neighbors, that there's conflict and that there's friction. And today it's time to make that right, to begin a journey of making that right. To begin to enter into the stories of your neighbors, to jump into their hurts, to jump into their celebrations, to jump into their births, to jump into their deaths, to jump into the divorces, to jump into their grief, to jump into their sorrow, to jump into uh, weddings, to jump into whatever it is. Get involved and know the stories of your neighbors and it will change. I can promise you, it will change your neighborhood. So as we began, I want to end the same way. I want to challenge you to neighbor. Verb, not noun. I want to challenge you to neighbor well. So God, as we pray this morning, we pray that you would lay it on our hearts, that you would imprint it on our hearts, the opportunities that you have before us, God, that you would, would break the scales off our eyes, that we, our ears would be tuned to what you're saying, that our hearts would be tuned to your spirit, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us words to speak, that you would give us ears to hear the stories of our neighbors, that you would give us a passion and power to enter into those stories, not by our own might, but by the power of the gospel story that has changed our lives, that we believe that we overcome by the by the word of the lamb, by the power of the lamb and the word of our testimony and that that is the gospel story that we pour into others, that we will receive your gospel and that we will not close the lid on it, but that we will pour out the gospel that you have given us, that we would receive and extend and that you would lay on our hearts the desire and the passion and the power to neighbor well. In the name of Jesus, the resurrected son, we pray. And the church said, amen. So I want to leave you with the scripture from 1 John 4. It's really, really simple, yet it's the core of the gospel. And it says this, we love because he first loved us. It doesn't say we love because we're commanded to love. It doesn't say we love because that's what we're supposed to do. It says we love because we were first loved. It was modeled for us. We walk as Jesus did. We love because he loved us. And when we receive the love of God, we can't help but love others. In the name of Jesus.